Well, I want to invite you guys to take your Bibles now and turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 31 is where we're going to be today. I'm going to go ahead and make a personal confession at this point. Despite my best efforts, I just can't get into the Marvel Comics universe. Or what some of you nerds out there refer to as the MCU. Don't hate me. I've tried. The movies are just so long. And the details just so intricate. And the interconnections just such a labyrinth. I can't make myself do it. But I will say this. If there's one thing that I do like about a good superhero movie, it's the origin story. Every superhero has one, right? It's usually the uh, it, it's usually a story of some sort of a, some sort of crucial experience, often happening to an unsuspecting normal person, something that transforms their life and sets them on their course. An origin story is a story that explains where they got their power, whatever that happens to be, and where they got their purpose. So you think about Peter Parker, wrong place or right place, wrong time, wrong right time, whatever you however you want to interpret it. Gets bitten by the radioactive spider. Then soon begins to discover he has powers that he can't explain and has never, never experienced before. His hands are sticking to walls and other and sundry things. He's got strength that he never developed through any sort of workout regimen. Initially uses his strength for his own sake. Fighting to win money for himself and, and applause. Staying back from Opportunities to intervene in, in the case of an evil bank robbery of some sort. Only then to lose his beloved Uncle Ben. By the same robbers, he could have stopped had he chosen not to be so selfish with his power. Embarking that from that point on a new career in which he would always use his power for good and never for evil. In which he would take up the great responsibility that comes built into great power. I won't do Superman or Batman, though I could. I like these origin stories, actually. And the story that we come to in Acts today is, is really a, very similar in a lot of ways. It, it is a kind of origin story. It tells of a conversion, of a powerful, dramatic transformation that happens all at once, and of a calling, a new sense of purpose that would, from this point, dominate the life of a key Christian figure. It's the story of a man who's known as Saul in Acts chapter 9 who will later become known as Paul who will become, aside from Christ himself, arguably the most important figure in Christian history for the way that God used him to spread the news of the gospel and for the way that God used him to articulate truths about Christianity, about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him that have been at the core of our faith ever since. Like most origin stories, this one has got some, uh, shall we say, exceptional details. Not many of you, any converts to Christianity ever have experienced what Paul did, and not many will. But unlike Spider-Man or Superman stories, in this origin story, there are some elements of it that teach us something basic about Christianity itself. They teach us something about what's true of every Christian. Because what matters most to this origin story isn't the one who's converted and called, but the Lord who does the converting and the calling. And this Lord is active today. 
He's active here among us. And it's his power we want to learn to recognize and to depend on in our own lives. What I want to do this afternoon is simply show you the conversion and the calling. The first few verses of this chapter describe Paul's conversion. I want to reflect on those verses and then talk about how, what we can learn from it. And then the next section of these verses describes his calling to us. I want to reflect on that calling and what we can learn from it. I want to begin by reading the first nine verses that we're going to cover this morning, or this afternoon, rather. I'm, I'm going to ask you guys to stand with me, if you would, in honor of God's word, as I read, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The power of this story, like any conversion story, comes from seeing what was true before, what was true after, and what happened in between. What was true of Saul before his conversion, we've already tasted before we reach this chapter. He's not a new character in the story Luke has been telling us. Luke has been preparing us already for this moment. We first see Saul at the execution of Stephen, the first faithful Christian to give his life for his new faith, is stoned in public by a group of religious leaders who wanted him dead. Meanwhile, Paul, Saul, rather, standing by, holding their coats to make it easier on them. And at the very beginning of chapter 8, Luke tells us, in case we missed the point, Saul approved of his execution. That's chapter 8, verse 1. In the few verses that follow that verse, we see Saul at work, not content with the death of Stephen. He's after anyone who owns the name of Jesus, anywhere he can find them throughout the city of Jerusalem. Luke's word for what he was doing to those Christians is ravaging the church, dragging them off from their homes, men and women alike, and throwing them into prison. And here, at the beginning of chapter 9, we see this Saul is still breathing threats and murder. The problem is that some of the Christians he had attempted to, to capture in Jerusalem escaped his net and scattered to the surrounding towns, including Damascus, to the north. So Saul gets letters from the high priest, the authority that he would need to go and capture them and bring them back arrested to face the consequences back in Jerusalem. He sets off on this 150-mile journey full of passion and zeal and clear conviction and the authority to back it all up, head held high. That's the picture Luke wants us to have of Saul before his conversion. 
Now, what was true after? By the time he arrives in Damascus? Well, this picture of Saul is quite different. Verse 8 gives us a picture of Saul entering the city led by the hand, broken and helpless, unable to see, fasting in his humiliation. What happened on the road to Damascus? What happened between Jerusalem and Damascus is that this great enemy of the church met Jesus, its founder and protector. Verse 3, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I think Luke is giving us a very understated picture here, but a clear one nonetheless. With these simple words from Jesus, Saul's old world unravels and a whole new world takes shape. He thought of Jesus before as a fraud, as someone exposed once and for all through a shameful death on the cross. Now he sees this Jesus is actually alive, just as these Christians had said vindicated by God and now ruling from heaven. Saul's been blaspheming the one who rules the world. That's what he sees now. He had thought of Christians, the early church, as a threat to the purity of God's people, Israel. There's a reason he was so passionate about stamping them out. But now he knows these people are the body of the Messiah himself. Jesus says, you're persecuting me when you persecute them. In other words, everything that Saul had taken for granted about his life up to this point, his whole identity and his whole purpose in this one simple exchange with Jesus has been demolished. And you might, ex you might expect him to be expecting next that he would get what he deserves. He has been the most public opponent of this movement. He's now learned that the Jesus took that personally. And this Jesus who rules the world has the power to crush him in this instant. And if I'm Saul, that's what I'm waiting for. But the same risen Jesus whose response has unraveled his world now opens the door to a new world, a brand new identity, and invites him to walk through it. Verse 6. Rise and enter the city. You will be told what you are to do. I realize that on the surface of it, that's not an explicit gospel offer. But doesn't it seem familiar to those of you who have been here since we covered Acts chapter 2, where Peter applied his sermon at Pentecost in much the same structure as this passage unfolds? He built to the moment where he confronts these religious leaders with the truth that the man they killed now lives and God has vindicated him with the throne of the universe. And those who heard him first say, what shall we do? They're cut to the heart. And rather than telling them to run and hide, Peter says, turn to him and he'll forgive you. That's who rules the world. 
that's what Saul learns here. We're going to talk about the next section of the story in just a moment, but I, I don't want to move anywhere until we think for a little bit more about what we can learn from this conversion story we've just covered. I mentioned earlier that, uh, that Saul's experience may be unique, but that it shows us something essential about what it means to be a Christian. I want to give you just two quick examples of what I mean by that. His story was unique, but it shows us something essential. Here's one example. Friends, you need to know that your best performance won't be enough. Your best performance will not be good enough. What matters is who is Jesus to you? Perhaps what you've been thinking about what matters most when it comes to religion is the sincere and authentic devotion of each religious person. Maybe, maybe you do believe that there is a God or a higher power of some sort, that knowing him, that pleasing him is possible and important to do. But maybe you've been thinking that, that really the various religions of the world are just so many different paths you could take to get to the same place. Friend, I hope if that's you this morning or this afternoon, you see that the, the, from this story alone you can see that the Bible's perspective is very different. What you need to remember is that Saul here in this story, this Saul who was, who was headed to Damascus in order to root out all of its Christians, he was not the villain that we probably instinctively take him to be from our perspective on this story. It's easy for us to identify with the Christians and to see him as the bad guy. But from his perspective and the perspective of, of his religious peers, he was doing exactly and only what a truly devoted person should aspire to do. He was, he was the one who was zealous enough to follow through on what he believed was right. He knew there was only one God. He knew that God didn't have any children. He knew the dead don't come back from, to life. And these Christians are attacking what's most precious to him, dragging thousands of people with them down this road of folly that ends in death. He was all in on what he deeply and sincerely believed that God wanted for him. And if, in, in case you're wondering why this, where I'm getting this, because it's, it's not here on the surface of the story of Acts, I, I want to read for you just a few verses from Philippians chapter 3, where Paul himself looks back on this time, where he even refers back to the persecution we see him conducting here in chapter 9 and tells us how he saw himself at the time. This is what he says in Philippians chapter 3. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. As to the law, he says, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. See, he's spinning that in a good, positive way. No one could match my zeal on, in my religion on our terms. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's who he was, according to Philippians 3. If religious zeal were what really counts, nobody could match this man. But, but he goes on. He continues in Philippians 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, not depending, in other words, for my worth and my justification on my religious zeal and all that I've accomplished through it. But that, that righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here's what I mean. Saul was a model religious believer within his faith, and he recognized in this conversion moment that he had nothing, counted it all as rubbish, saw it all right here for useless and filthy rags, and all because Saul was wrong about Jesus. Zeal is not what counts, friends. Who is Jesus to you? Your performance won't be enough. Paul's story tells us that much. But it also tells us that your worst guilt won't be too much. Your best performance won't be enough. But your worst guilt won't be too much. At the very moment that he sees that his best hope for righteousness was nothing but emptiness and filthy rags, rather than being struck down for the enemy that he clearly was, Saul is offered the opportunity for new life. At first, it's just a simple step of obedience. This is his step of repentance. Rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you're to do. But soon enough, you'll understand far more Soon enough, you'll understand the grace in this moment and now at the center of his life. This man who just now has been trying to destroy not just a movement, but the bride for whom Jesus died, those most precious to the one who rules the world, this man is now given forgiveness. Listen to how Saul, as Paul, thinks back on this moment in his first letter to Timothy, what Bill read for us earlier in our service. This is another place, like Philippians 3, where he goes back to the fact that he was a persecutor at one time. Listen to how he applies that part of his story here. Formerly, he says, I was a blasphemer. I said Jesus wasn't the Son of God when he, when he is. A persecutor and an insolent opponent. That's who I was. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now listen to this. Listen to what he says next. I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Let me translate this for you. Paul, right here, applies for us the lesson of Saul's conversion. He, the blasphemer who denied the risen Lord, the persecutor who antagonized his beloved bride, he, even he, 
received mercy. And precisely for this reason, friend, so that you, you with your history of failures, you with your repeated rising and falling, you with your struggle to follow through on what you know you should do, you with your undeniable guilt, so that you would have an example of the perfect patience of Jesus with all who believe in him. He came here precisely to save sinners. He will save you too. Because what matters is not your guilt. What matters is who is Jesus to you? Friends, I want to move now to talk of Saul's calling with the few minutes that I have left. Because just as we've seen something essential about Christianity and what it means to follow Jesus from the way in which Saul became a Christian, so we can see something essential about Christianity and what it means to follow Jesus from the calling that Saul received and took up for himself. I want to now read for you verses 10 to 31 before we walk through them together. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here, he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. 
and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Friends, there is far more here than we'll have time to unpack together. It is so rich that we can't possibly reach bottom. But I do want, for the moments we have left, to show you this calling that would reshape the rest of Saul's life and ultimately bring on his death. I want you to see the calling as he receives it, the calling as he obeys it, and then we'll think through the calling as it's applied to us. The calling received comes through Ananias, a faithful brother who knew better than to mess with this persecutor. Did you see that? He pushes back on the, on the command that he receives from the Lord, but he obeyed anyway and approached Saul. And it's through Ananias and what the Lord tells him that we know what's in store for this new believer. He's going to be the Lord's instrument to take the gospel not only to the Israel that he knows and loves so well, but to Gentiles and to kings too. That's verse 15. This calling comes into his life through Ananias' faithfulness. And soon after, Ananias obeys this command. Soon after, he lays his hands on Saul and sees Saul's eyes opened and the spirit fill him. Soon after, Saul himself is baptized. He is then shot out on this mission as if from a cannon. Did you notice any of the incredible ironies that fill up verses, uh, verses 20 to 31? Did you notice that the one who came to Damascus to root out its Christians now stands in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God? He's propagating here the very message that he came to suppress. Did you notice that the one who drove Christians all over the region with his persecution now flees for his own life, first in Damascus, then again in Jerusalem, and only the first of, of many times that he would be persecuted for his obedience to Jesus? And this man who had been the most staunch and effective opponent of the church would now become the most important force before or since for spreading the name of Jesus. This very message that he preaches in Damascus, he is the son of God, verse 20. He is the Christ, verse 22. We see here, Saul receive and take up a calling that was uniquely his as an apostle to the Gentiles. But in his calling, we have important things to learn for ourselves too. Yeah, there will only be one apostle, Paul. But we can find some tremendous hope and encouragement here from this calling. And I want to give you two examples of it. Here's example number one. God can reach anyone. Friends, if there's anything that we can learn from the story that we've just read. It's that nobody's too far for the grace and power of God to reach them. Did you notice that the first reaction of each group to Saul's conversion was shock and even skepticism? Everywhere he goes, Ananias is like, that guy? I don't think so. That, you sure Saul is the one you mean? The Jews in Damascus. No way. This guy, he's been creating havoc back in Jerusalem. He came here with letters in his hands to, to take Christians here back there so he, they can get what they deserve. 
It can't be Saul, not, not, not Saul. And then he, he shows up in Jerusalem and nobody will have anything to do with him except Barnabas because they know better than to mess with this guy. They're shocked. They can't believe he of all people. They knew better than to believe he could be reached. Surely he was too far gone, but, but no. Did you notice that right alongside the theme of shock in these verses is the theme of Saul's boldness? Saul tells everybody, he reasons with them. He confounds them, we're told. It's as if he's just provoking them. And even when threatened, he just keeps it up from place to place, wherever he goes. He just doesn't seem to care that the people he's preaching to don't want to hear it. He doesn't seem to care that they violently don't want to hear what he has to say. I mean, friends, the shock that people have over the fact that this man is now converted and the boldness that Saul has as he goes after this mission that God has given him come from the exact same reality. This guy should not have been reachable. But here he is. Saul has no fear of the cost because he knows Christ lives. Christ reigns. And he knows that because he himself is exhibit A. All the proof you could want. Apart from his experience of God's grace, I, I don't know how else to account for what he does with the rest of his life, beginning right here in what we see in this story. Here's a man who will spend the rest of his life sharing the gospel with people for whom the most plausible response to the message will be to kill the messenger. Like that makes more sense to them than to believe it. And, and that's among, that, we see that playing out here among Jewish hearers who had a context for God and for the Messiah with whom he shares so much background and culture. How much more the Gentile world that he's now bound for. How can he go about this mission? against these odds that were stacked against him for the rest of his life. He can do it because he knows if this gospel could save him, this gospel can reach anyone. I am not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1.16, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And that gospel, friends, has not lost its power in our day or in our church. If this living and reigning Christ could reach Saul, you know what doesn't matter? How interested in it somebody else seems. How predisposed they're likely to be to take it well. So I wonder, is there somebody you've given up on? Is there someone you've been hesitant to approach? Who could you engage with the gospel because you see this gospel could reach even Saul? This gospel can reach anyone. And there's one last lesson here. The God behind this gospel, the God who can reach anyone, God can use anyone too. Look who he chooses as his instrument. He chooses the persecutor in chief. He chooses his arch enemy. If he can use Saul, he can use you too. Because what matters, what matters is not the vessel that he uses, but the one whose power works through them. Maybe you're thinking, I don't have a compelling testimony to share like Paul does. My conversion didn't involve beams of light, involuntary blindness, 
and scales that fell off through the laying on of hands. I never had a before that included persecution and murder. Mine isn't the kind of story that helps people. Maybe you feel unintelligent. You say, well, of course you used Saul. This guy had training. He studied with the best minds of his day. He was equipped to go into these synagogues and reason with people and to confound them and to show them that Jesus was the Christ. I can't do any of that. Maybe you spend your days up to your eyeballs in tedious and thankless work, just taking care of your, ch your children day in and day out and have no energy left to spare. And you think, not me, not in this season. Maybe later. Maybe you struggle with doubt. Maybe you're even now depressed. And you can't imagine having anything encouraging or inspirational to offer to anybody. Friend, I want you to know that you might be right about all of it. That might be exactly who you are, and those limitations may be yours now and forever among many others. But you are not a more unlikely vessel for God's power and grace than Saul was. And you, like Saul, have been given a calling by your maker and your redeemer. You can trust him to give you everything you're going to need to obey. This origin story right here, guys, it was not just about Saul. I mean, it was, but it wasn't. This story is here for us. And in his letters, Paul's making sure we take the point. And I want to leave you with one last point. One last time in his letters, just a quick read. 2 Corinthians 4, 6-7. For God who said, let sh light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Does that sound familiar? That's what happened to him on the Damascus Road. He's saying that happened to you too, even if it didn't look like mine. But we have this treasure, this treasure of God's power and grace, we have this treasure in jars of clay, common, easily broken, not much to look at, and fragile. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The God behind this origin story is in your story too. Let's pray to him now that he will help us to be obedient as Saul was. Father, we are dependent on your grace and power for anything good that ever comes out of us. Not only are you the only supplier of every breath we've ever taken or ever hoped to take, not only do we, we only ever eat from your hand, but we know that any good that might come from us to anyone else will have to be good supplied by you. We know our weakness and our limits. Father, now help us to trust you to work in us in spite of ourselves and give us the joy and the confidence that comes from knowing you plan to. And we pray for this for your name's sake.
so that everyone will know that the power belongs to you and not to us. In Jesus' name, amen.